Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And before I announce what we have coming up on our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I like to pay our respect um, to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land. <clears throat> Okay, so um, for your presenters today, uh, unfortunately due to a bit of a last minute emergency with one of our other presenters who um, was going to be coming in today, um, I'm going to be the probably the main, I'm the only sort of presenter for Green Left Radio today um, and usually we always usually have to have, usually we always have two presenters and probably this is the first time we have had to be a sole kind of presenter, so apologies to our listeners, it was kind of unavoidable. But uh, we still have a pretty packed kind of program. Um, I've got one thing to kind of note is that those who have been listening to kind of FreeCR, especially our morning program, um, breakfast morning programs, um, this week is Disarmament Week, um, which is basically a week kind of long, um, week long sort of, um, it's basically a kind of week it's basically a week-long kind of a, a, a kind of special kind of ob day of week of observation um, by the United Nations on basically, you know, to basically putting out the the, the case for demilitarization and disarmament of nuclear weapons. Um, and so, as part of that, we're going to be having a special interview from 8:05 with um, Dimity Hawkins, who is part of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, to talk about all the kind of different issues relating to demilitarisation and so on. Now, the kind of main kind of story I, like, I would like to kind of talk about is one of the sort of main things that has kind of dominated the headlines in this past week has been this, the, the, the announcement by the Morrison government that the government is going to be committing to net zero admissions by 2050. Now, this comes in the context of the fact that um, Comp 26 is going to be um, happening this week, and I'm, I've got a special inter um, pre-recorded interview to kind of play on that. Comp 26 is happening, and of course there's a lot of pressure on world leaders to adopt um, stronger climate targets. And now, of course, Australia is one of the, the worst kind of offenders in terms of its climate policy. And in fact, you know, throughout the entire history of Australia, Australia is characterised really as an economy that is completely and addicted to fossil fuels. And in fact, 
within the kind of context, the historical context of um, how Australian capitalism kind of developed, you know, mining and um, the pastoralist kind of industries are very kind of dominant um, within our political kind of system. And of course, they are the ones who are, you know, opposed to taking any kind of kind of uh, who are kind of like the main voice for opposition to taking any serious action on climate change. So the Morrison government made base has in the kind of headline sort of news in the past week basically made an announcement that they're going to be committing to net zero emissions by 2050. Now this I think is as we've sort of we this is something that we've been discussing on Green Left Radio for a while but net net zero emissions by 2050 is essentially I think is essentially a do nothing policy. The government is essentially making a commitment that they will reduce emissions. They're going to do, be doing some investment in um, in technology um, to reduce emissions. But ultimately, for the immediate future, the the signalling of this government of the government's kind of announcement is basically the status quo will remain in place for a good while. And it's all based on this kind of logic of the market. Essentially that the, the government has adopted a client policy where essentially everything is going to be um, left to the market. And I think it was quite telling that Morrison, in this net zero um, by 2050 kind of announcement, he basically made this kind of argument that, you know, it's it's it, he's basically said reducing emissions relies on technology and not political commitments. And I think we have to we have to take that apart because essentially um in the current context of the climate crisis that we're currently kind of facing the technology actually does exist where the technology to make a transition to um zero emissions actually exists within our fingertips there is just there is just no political will from any kind of governments to actually make any kind of investment or Make any shift to all, um, towards renewable energy or, um, or to an, or to a non, or to a non fossil fuel kind of economy. The fact is, it's actually, um, Morrison is actually wrong to say that, that, um, setting emissions reduction targets is a question of technology. It's actually really more or less a question of political will. And the fact that the Morrison government has essentially signaled, um, that they're not going to be taking any um, any real action to um, essentially committing to net zero by 2050 essentially means they're just basically going to take have a do nothing approach for the foreseeable future. They're going to keep burning fossil fuels in the ground. They're going to keep expanding um, coal mine projects. But of course, um, the the implication is obviously when when that technology becomes um, when they've exhausted all the profitability of of those technologies like fossil fuels yes that's when we're going to start making a transition to renewable energy and i think that is something that we ha- um that has to be kind of be noted um as socialists because essentially you know people have probably noticed that you know the murdoch media is going has made a big 180 shift on climate change you know, they essentially are supporting, you know, this idea of net zero emissions by 2050. They're supporting this idea that we need to make a transition to a green economy. And that's actually pre, um, that's actually in the context of the fact that the Murdoch media has played this consistent role of, um, essentially not supporting any 
um, a real climate action. The fact that they kind of made this kind of shift, I think, really reflects a really strong example of outright greenwashing. And essentially, they're just basically, basically supporting, you know, all the kind of green capitalists who are kind of wanting to invest into renewables and basically wanting to make a profit off it. Because really, the fair, the kind of failure of a lot of climate policy really in the, in the past 15 to 20 years has been the fact, has been this whole delusion of relying on the market, um, to, to make, um, to make that. And I think, you know, in in relation to the Morrison kind of government's kind of announcement that they'll commit to net zero by 2050, I think is very much kind of reflective of that. Anyway, I might just go play. I'll play. I'll take a break from discussing this, and we'll just go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And just to have a, to give, um, a bit of a breather for this week, um, and also just to, um, I'm going to go play, uh, I'll play a bit of a quick song before we play our pre-recorded, um, our pre-recording for this um, break week. So I'm going to be playing, um, a song, Black Boy by Emily Romara. You're listening to Green Left Radio. But I'm done. 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Or call the station on 94198377. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for you're just listening to um, the song you're just listening to before was Black Boy by Emily Roramara. Now, the next thing um, I'm going to go play, um, given that comp, um, given the discussion about um, net zero, um, about um, about the federal government committing to net zero by 2050. I thought for, um, and the next part of our program, we'll play this, um, pre-recorded interview that was a green, um, that was a green left, um, show. And basically it is an interview with climate council, um, basically a member of the, of the climate council <clears throat> on, on Will, Will Stefan. And essentially it is basically point, it's basically a discussion on the type of climate, on the type of climate policies that should be adopted in the lead up, in the lead up to the United Nations Climate Summit COP26 in Glasgow. So yeah, I hope, um, this, this was a green, um, a green left show conducted by Green Left's Alex Bangbridge. Um, so yeah, hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. One. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to the people-powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Thanks everyone for joining us for this latest episode of the Green Left Show. Uh, as always, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this on stolen Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded and we uh, pay our ongoing um, respects to traditional owners and pledge our solidarity for ongoing struggles for justice. Today we're going to be talking about climate change in the lead up to the Conference of the Parties, the, the Glasgow Climate Summit in November, and also we've got the climate strike coming up this Friday. I'm here today with Will Steffen, who is a world-leading climate um, expert. He's an emeritus professor at the Australian National University, and he's also a councillor with the Climate Council of Australia. Uh, before we get underway, I would like to point out that if you like the work we do, please become a supporter. It is the best way to show support for the work that we do and to receive the material that we produce. There are details below and plans start from just $5 a month. It makes a tremendous difference. Also, you could simply just give this video or this podcast a thumbs up, share the episode, help build the audience. That'll make a big difference as well. So I'd like to get into this discussion with, uh, with Will Stefan. Certainly the, uh, the area of Will's work that I'm most familiar with is the the idea that there might be a series of cascading uh, climate tipping points that lead to the development of a hothouse earth. And I asked Will to begin by just uh, explaining what a climate tipping point is and what is this potential for the, you know, the hothouse earth development. Yeah, tipping points are um, processes or features of your system uh, where you can push them, put some stress on them, they change a bit, they change a bit, and they reach a critical point where a small increase in pressure can lead to an unexpectedly large response. Sometimes those responses are irreversible on time frames that are useful to us. Uh, sometimes you can cross a tipping point uh, and the system doesn't seem like it's changing any faster, but it reaches a point where you can't stop it from changing. I'll give you an example of the latter there, and that's the Arctic sea ice, which is the floating ice over the Arctic Ocean. And, of course, uh, that is uh, retreating as the climate warms. So in the northern hemisphere summer, what that does is as that ice shrinks, it uncovers more dark ocean water that absorbs more sunlight, increases the heating. The ice shrinks a bit more. So it's shrinking a bit year by year. 
but it'll get to a critical point where um, we can stabilize global average temperature, but the fact that it's uncovering more darker ocean water every summer will continue the process and it will basically disappear. Um, It may not speed up a whole lot, but it will be irreversible. Um, Greenland ice sheets, another example, is that it's melting from the top as well as losing some from its outlet glaciers. But as it melts from on top, it is lowering in elevation into warmer climatic zones. And it will reach a point where, again, if we stabilize the climate, it'll just keep dropping until it virtually disappears. So these are a couple of examples of of what tipping points look like. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I guess your your paper in 2018 sort of put forward this idea that there might be a, like the one tipping point might lead to the next, might lead to the next, and that could lead to a to a hot house earth. Can you explain that as well? Yeah. So ba- basically, um, you can look at them individually. Um, and I mentioned two of them. There are others in other parts of the world. Uh, coral reefs are another good example of a tip- temperature tipping point. Um, and the Amazon forest, another good example. But the point is, is that they are all, uh, or many of them, I should say, not all of them, many of them are linked in various ways. And probably the best way to look at it is to start with uh, what we talked about before, um, which is the Arctic sea ice, because, of course, as that shrinks, it is uncovering darker ocean water, as we mentioned. That's absorbing more sunlight during their summertime, which means it's increasing the heating regionally in the northern high latitudes. That, in turn, is increasing the melt of the Greenland ice sheet. So here you see a connection between two tipping points. But what is Greenland doing? Well, it's it's melting from on top, uh, which means it is pouring fresh water into the North Atlantic Ocean. Um, And that is uh, influencing the Atlantic Ocean circulation system. And we can already measure a slowdown in the North Atlantic uh, circulation system. Well, what does that do? Well, it actually changes rainfall patterns of continents next to the Atlantic Ocean. And it uh, has an effect all the way down toward the equator. Uh, and, and in fact, one of those effects is to reduce rainfall over the Amazon forest. And so when you do that and you combine it with direct human pressures, you get an increase in, in loss of that forest. And that may reach a critical tipping point and tip over. That's an example where four different tipping points, Arctic sea ice, a Greenland ice sheet, Atlantic Ocean circulation, and Amazon rainforest are all connected. So we can start looking at these various connections. They don't form a neat uh, row of dominoes entirely, uh, but they are connected, and so one can lead to another. So the concern is that there is a risk that if enough of these start tipping, the Earth system itself will move to an essentially different state. And that's how complex systems actually do transition from one state to another quite commonly. It's it's usually a, a combination of factors that push them out of a stable state into an unstable trajectory until they settle down into another stable state. And that's the concern is that that, that is a risk uh, for the Earth system that I think we do need to take seriously. I think um, anyone with eyes to see can see that the climate crisis is a... A, a big issue, like an important issue that that has got to be dealt with. I mean, you just look at the 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 series of uh, weather extremes in the northern summer that's just gone. Um, you know, now I, w- I was involved in a in a climate action group um, a bit over a decade ago called Safe Climate, and even then there were people saying, "Oh, safe climate is gone. We've 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 left the Holocene. The safe climate is gone." But this idea of, I guess. Crossing that planetary threshold that you spoke about, or, or and as I understand you've described as hothouse Earth, to me it feels like that is 
the job of humanity at the moment is to try and make sure we avoid crossing that planetary threshold. So I guess, I mean, firstly, in Australia, climate politics is so so backward. I mean, um, people are talking about net zero 2050 as, as if that's some, you know, major uh, threshold that the government might, um, might cross. Um, so I guess, I mean, firstly, is it even possible for us to avoid crossing that planetary threshold? And if so, does, does the net zero 2050 cut it? Uh, well, certainly I'll start with the back, with back end of that question first. No, net zero by 2050 won't cut it. That's far too late. Uh, we have to act with much more urgency than that. How close are we to a, a global um, tipping point? In other words, initiating some sort of uh, cascade? Uh, we don't know. Uh, and that's, and we probably never will know. Uh, and the best quote uh, I can give you is a, a colleague and a good friend of mine named Carlos Nobre, who's former head of the World Climate Research Program. So he's a pretty heavyweight guy in terms of the climate system. He's a Brazilian, and his area of expertise is the Amazon rainforest. And so you, a lot of people ask him a question. He is really the world's expert on this. How close are we to a tipping point of the Amazon forest? And his answer is, well, I can't tell you for sure. I think we're closer than we suspect we are. But he said where that tipping point precisely lies, the only way we'll know that for sure is by tipping it. And then he said, and that's not a very intelligent thing to do. So that's that's the point I make is we we will never know for sure uh, where a potential tipping cascade will be initiated at what level of human pressure. And it will probably be a combination of, of climatic pressure plus some local pressures on forests and so on. Um, we'll only know after we've after we've tipped it and we see that it's that it's underway and then it's too late. So you really need to take a risk analysis. And I think the the IPCC six assessment report was actually quite good in the summary for policymakers by putting some real high end risks in there. For example, you know, a 15 meter sea level rise by 2300. Um, that's a huge sea level rise by 2300. Uh, but they said we can't rule it out. And so that 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 terminology the the terminology they used which was there are some things we can't rule out we think they're low probability but they're extremely high impact and we can't rule them out so you better take them seriously when you do a risk analysis and i think that's the appropriate way to look at a tipping cascade hothouse earth we can't rule it out the earth has been four or five degrees hotter in the past we know it can exist in that state but we don't know for sure where we might trigger such a, a transition a tipping cascade so the risk analysis says stay away from any potential tipping point as far as you can to safeguard the future. That's that's the approach you need to take. OK, thanks for that. I mean, so then I guess getting back to current policies, because we're in the lead up to the, the conference of the parties in Glasgow next month. Um, a lot of countries have put a you know more ambitious climate policies than Australia. Uh, so I think we've got you know, Joe Biden on um 50% by 2030. The European Commission is saying 55%. Uh, Boris Johnson's got a 78% reduction from a different starting point by 2035. So, I mean, these these uh, other countries are, are far in advance of Australia. Um, what would you say? I mean, even the Business Council of Australia has come out this last weekend saying 46% for Australia. Um, so, obviously, Australia could, could be doing a lot more. But are the, are the kinds of figures that those other countries talking about are they enough you know or, or i guess to put it in your language is that a is that an adequate response to the risk assessment well i think it's it's certainly pointing us in the right direction and and it is reducing the risk um i think what we need to do globally is to cut emissions at least by 50 percent by 2030 that's a minimum and we should aim for better 
and we should reach net zero by 2040, not 2050. And again, that's the minimum. If we can do it a few years before that, the better. When you look at the so-called carbon budget for a trajectory like that, you will get close. We'll probably get close to 1.5. We won't get there. I think we've left it too late. But we will keep temperature rise, hopefully, to well below 2. That's 1.7, 1.8. That's not altogether safe. But we've pretty serious impacts. But at least from where we sit today in 2021, that will, I think, minimize the risk. It will totally eliminate the risk that we still might initiate a tipping cascade, even with that scenario. But we have a much higher risk of really bad outcomes if we stick with a net zero by 2050 and a weak 2030 target. So that's the point I would make is net zero by 2050. I think that's sort of a cop out. It's easy to say. It's kicking the can down the road. We really need to look very carefully what countries are pledging by 2030 and when they really need to hit net zero. And it's got to be well before 2050. I wanted to turn to, I guess, what I've got in my notes here as the bright siding versus alarmism debate. I think we've seen, I mean, people like Michael Mann have pointed out, I think very correctly, that the doomism today is the new denialism. Like there's a sort of a sense of, oh, it's just doom is just all too great. Um, and that is, you know, we, we, we can't do anything and it basically, you know, uh, leads to a sort of a, to a stifling of action. Um, so doomism today is a new denialism. I think that's, I think that's totally fair enough. On the other hand, I've, I've heard some people, uh, both science, uh, climate scientists and science communicators talking about this sort of thing. Oh, we're on this sort of climate heating global superhighway. We're aiming for the 1.5 exit. If we don't make the 1.5 exit, well, then we go for, you know, two or if we miss two, then we go for 2.5. I mean, I guess at a certain point that, I mean, well, obviously that's true. Obviously we've got to, we've got to take the exit as soon as we possibly can. Um, but surely there is a danger uh, if we leave it too long. So I guess, um, can you, I guess, yeah, explain what your thoughts are on this sort of, you know, doomism versus um, denialism or bright siding versus alarmism. Uh, where would you sort of, um, what, 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 what would be your response to that discussion? My response is, is probably different from most people, and that comes from more of my personal background than um, any really expert understanding of, of doomism or alarmism versus bright, whatever they call it, sunshine pumping is what I would call it. But anyway, and that's because um, one of my activities until I got a bit too old was uh, climbing and mountaineering, uh, which is a dangerous activity. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and the danger is right in front of you. Uh, and, and my view there, particularly on, on high altitude mountaineering, uh, where, where there are a lot of um, what we call objective dangers, uh, you can't control them. They're there in terms of crevasses, in terms of weather shifts and so on, that you absolutely have to understand risks as clearly, as clearly as you possibly can, uh, which then makes it much easier for you to take the most appropriate action to minimize risk. So, uh, where I, I, I might, I'm not sure about exactly what Michael means about, about denialism or alarmism. I think we need to understand risk really clearly. And that means we don't need to, we shouldn't sugarcoat it because that's going to lead to poor decisions. On the other hand, we need to say, all right, things look really bad. There's some really big risks out here, but you have to take the next step. Say, all right, as a climber, what are the actions you take to minimize those risks? Where do you really turn back on a climb? 
where do you say, I think the risks are manageable. Um, the reason I'm still here at age 74 is I think I made the right decisions uh, in several situations where I could have lost my life. Let's put it that way. So um, that's the way we need to think is we need to be absolutely clear minded uh, about what these risks really are. And we need to have the best science to understand them. We shouldn't deny them or sugarcoat them or try to push them in the background. But we have to take the next step of empower people to say, this looks pretty bad. What do we do to get the best possible outcome we can from here on out? So so what I'm saying now is that what we're saying is that 1.5 is virtually gone without an overshoot and drawdown. But well below two is not. And there's a huge difference that, that every tenth of a degree is really important. Um, so that means there's an enormous amount to gain. Uh, there's an enormous amount we can still avoid. Um, but but the clear the clear eyed view is we can't go back and pat ourselves on the back and say, whoo, we, we avoided a lot there. We haven't yet. We have to act. And that's the second point I make is how do you get people optimistic? You don't do it by telling them good news or sunshine pumping. You do it by acting. <laughs> that's how you solve a big climate, uh, you know, a big climbing problem is you act. <laughs> You know, you act um, with the best uh, understanding, with the best um, skills you've got, and with timing. You've got to do all that and trust your your climbing mates. So, and we've got to do this with climate. We've we've got to act with the best we know. We've got to act vigorously, fast, with determination, and consistently. Um, And that's where governments have let us down. But we as citizens really need to push the buggers to say, look, our future depends on this. You can't fiddle around with short-term politics. We need to move on this now. Those are the sort of messages that science needs to make, and I think we are making pretty well now. I think there, is been a, there has been a shift from a lot of scientists speaking out more, more, more vocally on climate. Is that your assessment as well? Absolutely. I think that's very good, and we see shifts even in the IPCC. Look at the, um, science, um, the, the um, summary for policymakers, SPM. Uh, the wording in that is quite different from earlier ones. I mean, it's absolutely straight down the, the you know, the, the, the science is absolutely there, rock solid science. But the risk analysis is very clear now in that report, which I think is a, something that we are obliged to do as scientists is, is to put it on the table in terms of what the risk risks really look like. All right. Well, I guess to, to finish up, I mean, we, we've got the COP coming up, as I mentioned. We also got this Friday, the climate strike, um, at least happening online or in, in person in different parts of Australia. So I think that is, uh, you know, some of the most inspiring action we've seen in, in recent years. I wonder if you want to make any comments about about that um, or and also, I guess, if there's anything else more specifically you wanted to say about policy directions that you would advocate um, in Australia. Yeah, look, uh, obviously, our, our policies are far, far too weak. Everybody knows that. Um, and I think we're pretty, pretty sure now that there are some fairly interesting discussions and arguments going on within the coalition at the moment uh, on on what we need to do uh, going into Glasgow. Time is running out for them. Uh, but I think there are a couple of things. Obviously, perhaps SCOMO will come with a net zero by 2050. I, I think he probably, he probably would like to do that. Um, uh, that's the absolute bare minimum. I think the real focus here needs to be on what do we do by 2030? Uh, we've got to make that really, really clear. And the second point is, um, and this follows on not from a bunch of greenies or scientists, it follows from the International Energy Agency, is that we have to stop uh, investment in new fossil fuel projects of any kind, coal, oil, or gas. Uh, and I think the IEA is pointing the finger mostly at Australia. 
uh, and that we need to stop this. We can't hide behind the fact that, well, if we export it, somebody else's problem. No, it's our problem because we actually have control over those deposits of fossil fuels. We can choose not to exploit them and we can choose to develop renewables instead. Um, so that's within our, our remit and that's what we need to do. So I would like to see a focus on two things. One is at least 50% uh, reduction by 2030. I would like to see it much higher. We in the Climate Council are re reckoning that 75%, it's a challenge, but it's achievable. And that's what we should aim. We should aim high. But really importantly, we should absolutely put the brakes on fossil fuel development. No more. Full stop. Just stop it all now. That's what we need to do. Yeah, actually, well, yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I guess from, uh, I mean, I'm coming from this as a, as a political activist and at the radical end of the, of the political spectrum. And I think a lot of people make judgments about what they advocate based on assumptions about what is politically possible. And I guess I feel like climate change is, is the issue about which we need to shift everything on its head and, um, and basically go all out as fast as we can. Are there, are there any final comments you want to make before we finish up? Yeah, just to follow on from your last comment about politics, uh, the laws of physics don't pay any attention to politics. This planet operates on the laws of physics, chemistry, and so on, on natural sciences. Uh, we're giving advice based on the best science. Uh, politics better listen to this because the natural world doesn't compromise like politicians do. Uh, and that's my, my last word. Okay, thanks for that, Will. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Um, as always, if you like our work, please do become a supporter. It does make a really big difference. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au. All right, you're just listening to a recording of the Green Left show, um, which was um, an interview with Will Steffen on climate pol um, policies in the lead-up to Glasgow. Okay, so I'll just play um, a quick announcement, and then we'll just go move on to our next news story. You are listening to Green Left Radio. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to a Green Left Radio. And one news story I was going to discuss, and this is something that has been in the new media for the past week, especially pertaining to Victoria. But this is, um, this is an announcement about, um, a discussion about how 
the Crown Resorts has essentially been allowed to keep its Melbourne casino licence, despite the fact that it has been proven in a Royal Commission to be guilty of illegal dishonest conduct. And, I mean, the summary of this kind of story is... Crown Casino has been found, and, and this has been a report that was tabled in the Parliament, that there were basically a litany of failings in the way Crown um, has dealt with anti-money laundering rules, and that it essentially facilitated money laundering through a bank account held by a subsidiary. Now, despite the fact that, you know, a capitalist kind of institution found that Crown Casino was guilty of what is actually a very kind of serious kind of crime, rather than a kind of recommendation to strip the company of its licence, the recommendation of this kind of Royal Commission was that essentially a special manager should um, is basically going to be appointed to kind of oversee the operations of the casino for the next two years. And then... The um the next thing is in in this context the Victorian government who which is kind of responsible for taking action on on this kind of report has essentially accepted this recommendation which sets out that the license will be cancelled unless Crown can convince the casino regulator it has reformed itself in the meantime. Now, just there's a few kind of interesting kind of things about this story, and I think it reflects a certain sort of class <laughs> nature of the story, but of of society because. One of the, the kind of notable kind of things is, you know, when you look at the fact that um, people on Centrelink, ordinary kind of people, um, were basically, if, if they had owed any debt or were suspected of owing any debt, there was pretty much no fair fair trial or fair assessment, and essentially they were basic, you're basically forced um, um, to pay. Um, the fact that, you know, um, when it comes to any sort of crime that uh, any kind of person um, that a working class um, person commits, you are essentially, you know, put um, face the harshest kind of consequences um, in the, in the court of law, including potential jail time and also potential fines that are much more um, that are that are can be hard to pay. But when it comes to a major casino. Um, um, company like Crown, um, like Crown, you can be guilty of very serious um, misconduct, um, of a very kind of serious kind of crime that would get jail time in in most kind of normal kind of circumstances. Essentially, Crown Casino is just basically getting a slap on the wrist for for despite being guilty of absolutely kind of disgraceful kind of conduct. So I think this actually kind of, I think this kind of reflects you know. A lot of a lot of kind of different things about uh, about society, and I guess one of the other interesting things that you know there was also within this kind of royal commission there was also reports that you know they found that um, Crown had underpaid um, state gambling tax with many senior executives involved in this the misconduct being indifferent to their ethical moral and sometimes legal obligations, and that lawyers who knew um, Crown wanted to engage in conduct that can um, contravened some laws, failed to counsel um, Crown Melbourne not to go ahead, and you know, despite despite um, despite the um, an earlier kind of recommendation that Crown lose its license, you know, the 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 the, the response to that was, and this is a kind of like a classic kind of example, 
they, the basic argument was that, um, you know, despite, um, that despite Crown's misconduct, there was a real risk of significant harm to the Victorian company economy and to innocent third parties if Crown's Melbourne um, licence were immediately cancelled. And then, of course, there was also an argument that Crown Melbourne also has the will and the capacity to reform itself. So again, it becomes a suitable person to hold a casino licence and can remove the stain on its representation. So I think that, I think, really, that I think says kind of everything about the nature of this and the fact that I think it is completely outrageous that, you know, Crown Casino, despite being guilty of a very serious crime, the fact that it the fact that it is receiving no consequences for this despite um to, um despite this being guilty of serious misconduct and it's receiving nothing more than a slap on the wrist, I think is quite insulting. And I think, you know, as left wing people I think we should be opposed to you know, we should we should be rightfully kind of outraged about this. Right. Well, I'll just play um, a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Well, if you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three say, oh, I sure know where you are. If you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. They're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three say, oh, clap your hands. What? Who the hell is that? Clap your hands. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the next kind of news story, I was going to take an article from, um, I was basically, I was going to read from an article from Green Left, which is following from a number of articles that we've sort of reported on, which is about this whole question around prison prison rights. And now the article is titled Prisoner Rights um, Activists Take Aim at the Government's Negligence. And essentially, um, to to sum it up, family members of prisoners and prisoner rights advocates gathered outside the New South Wales Law Courts on October 20 to protest the government's negligence in dealing with COVID-19 outbreaks in prisons. The event was organised by Justice Action and heard from founder um, Brett Cottons, 
Collins, prisoner rights activists Jacob Grench and Joanna um, Skiffen, the mother of a prisoner and instigator of the support group um, Jowing Truths Exposed, which, shed li- which sheds light on the experiences of people in prisons. Prisoner rights activist um, Rachel Evans shared the protests. And reporting on this action, um, speakers demanded the government immediately implement social distancing measures in prisons, offer vaccinations and computer tablet access to prisoners in their cells, implement early release programs for non-violent prisoners and guaranteed exercise and airtime in accordance with um, health regulations. Twelve families have... Um, have Twelve families have, have essentially... Um, filed a class action in the Supreme Court in an effort to compel um, Corrective Services, New South Wales, um, CSN, New South Wales, to enact the measures. And Skibben took, um, in, in his speech, took aim at the prison and authorities' mismanagement of the virus outbreak at Parkley Prison. Corrective um, Services had 18 months to plan for a COVID-19 outbreak, um, she said. It would appear and had only been reported that their only plan was to lock prisoners away. Inmates are locked away even when testing negative for COVID-19 for six weeks. They received, on average, half an hour out of the cell a day. Some inmates don't even get that. And then Skiven said that Parkley management had also failed to provide hygiene products and clean clothing to prisoners in lockdown, that medication was not regularly distributed and often denied, and that many prisoners felt there was no hope and that the only solution was death. Collins said that the conditions inside prisoners um, prisons where two or three people live together in, a, in the area of a bathroom constituted a death sentence for some. We know that from the United States and France that there is six times the rate of death from COVID-19 for people who are inside prisons. There, are, there is a legal obligation for people who are held in custody to be held safely. That has been not been heard to by the New South Wales government. The New South Wales prison system, which incarcerates up around 13,100 people at any given time, has recorded hundreds of COVID-19 cases since the Delta variant entered um, Parkley Prison in late August. Prison advocates have expressed their concern over CSN New South Wales' lack of transparency on case numbers, despite health advice that prisoners be prioritised for vaccination. Vaccination rates for prisoners in this state have lagged behind those of the general population. When the outbreak began at Parkley, just 20, 22% of um, prisoners had been fully vaccinated, less than half the rate of the general population. And another kind of outrageous thing about this um, story is that there has been damning information that has emerged that guards at Parkley Prison, which is privately operated, had tried to infect prisoners with um, COVID-19. Prison activist um, Jacob Gretsch read out parts of an affidavit from Storm Lee um, Zufra, a prisoner at Park Lee, claiming he was moved to Area 6C, the intensive care unit wing, despite not having the virus. Zufra was tested for COVID every five days um, for more than six weeks, returning next negative results each time, yet he was confined to his cell and not allowed to exercise outside. He said that uh, the, uh, he, he said he asked a correctional services activist why he was not allowed being sent back to the main prison and reports the officers wide you'll be sent back when you catch COVID-19 and then you get better. Um, Zarfar claims he was told this about five times by different correctional officers and Zarfar only received his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine on October the 1st. 
And then District Court Judge Andrew Colfax said on October 7th that the concerning evidence was not contested by the Crown and did not seem to be an isolated case involving the Parkley Correctional Centre. On October the 22nd, um, Corrections Minister Anthony Roberts announced that the Department of Communities and Justice would initiate an independent inquiry into the allegations made by Zafar and other prisoners regarding their um, treatment by staff at Parkley. So, yeah, that's a bit of the summary. And I think, you know, as we kind of discussed before, I mean, I think the, the, his, the handling of COVID-19 of um, those who have been held in prison, I think, is... Um, absolutely outrageous. And the fact is we're seeing parallels with this situation with how they're currently treating refugees, um, who are imprisoned within the Park Hotel. And, and as I, as I noted, there is going to be a rally this Saturday tomorrow at 2 p.m. in support of those refugees who are currently being imprisoned because I think, you know, just like, um, just like the, the prisoners, um, within New South Wales, refugee, um, the refugees who are being imprisoned in the Park Hotel by our own government are clearly not receiving any necessarily just treatment in terms of, you know, protecting them from COVID. All right. So I might just play, um, I'll play a quick, I'll play a quick through announcements. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And now, because we're going to be doing um, a special interview um, for Disarmament Week um, at 8.05, we're going to start doing um, the weekly Green Left Actors Calendar a bit earlier. Now, the first kind of announcement I just want to note is... Um, a lot of uh, now that lockdown has been lifted in Victoria, there is actually now a um, number of in-person protests going to be happening now, uh, which I think is quite welcome. Um, and I think it's been it's good that we're um, able to get back on the streets and build, um, start building protests. So the first kind of protest that's going to be happening is there is going to be a rally, healthcare not detention, evacuate the refugees now, and that's going to be happening on Saturday, October the 30th at 2 p.m. at the Park Hotel on Swanson Street. 
On Saturday, October the 30th, um, at 7.30pm, there's going to be an online forum, World Kabani Day Solidarity. And that is um, going to be a special kind of online event. If you go onto the Australians for Kurdistan um, kind of page, you can get the details um, for the event and how you can get into the Zoom um, um, Zoom. Now, the next kind of thing to note is um, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is apparently still going on and it's going to be happening till October the 31st. So if you look up the Melbourne Documentary kind of Film Festival online, you should be able to get details for that. And then on Wednesday, um, on Wednesday, October, on Wednesday, October the um, 26th, actually, no, this is a, this is another, actually, that's already kind of passed. On Friday, October the 29th, there is, um, an online forum, the transgender issue, an argument for, um, justice. And then on, um, on Monday, November the, the 1st, there's going to be an online, um, forum. Park Hotel um, COVID outbreak. Refugees speak out. Um, so that should be. Um, a, and I think that forum is being organised by Refugee Action Collective. Let's double check. Yes, it's been organised by Refugee Action Collective Sydney and Refugee Action Collective Victoria. So yeah, go on to their respective kind of Facebook pages. You could you can get the details for that. Um, and then on Wednesday, November. Um, the third, there is Stop Adani, Stop the Money Action Hour, which is going to be happening at 7pm. Then on Thursday, November the 4th, there's going to be an online forum um, on unpacking um, Scott Morrison's climate plan, and that's going to be happening at 4pm. And then on on 7pm, um, there's going to be an online forum, and Gracious Anti-Orcus um, Caucus 2, um, so that's going to be happening at 7pm. On Thursday, November the 4th. Then on Friday, November the 5th, there's going to be the Comp 26 Melbourne Speakout organised by Workers um, for Climate Action. And that's going to be happening at 5.30pm outside the Liberal Party HQ headquarters at 257 Collins Street in the city. And then on Saturday, November the 6th, there's going to be a Community Action Moreland Climate Cup Race to Zero Emissions at 10.30am at various different locations around Moreland. It's basically going to be a decentralised action for climate action, and that's going to be happening at 10.30am. And you can just check the, um, the Facebook event at the Moreland Climate Cup to get the details on how you can register for that. Now, the next... Um, thing to note is um, there's going to be a rally, Comp 26 Global Day of Action at 1pm at um, the State Library, 328 Swanson Street. Then on Sunday, November the 7th, there's going to be a rally, Free the Refugees, Permanent Visas Now, at 2pm at Lincoln Square on Swanson Street in Carlton. And then on Sunday, November the 4th, there's going to be an, a forum, I think this might be in person, let me double check... So there's this is a forum being organised by um, by okay all right that's it's going to be it's a, a panel discussion the Australian Labor Party and um, let's see and this way the Australian Labor Party and the left and that's going to be at the International Bookshops at uh, Bookshop at the Shades Hall Victoria and you have to book tickets for um, this event because there's a capacity limit of up to 30 people due to current covid kind of restrictions so yeah if you search if you check that um, if you check the new international bookshop kind of 
Facebook page or the website, you can get the details on how to kind of link up with that event. So, yeah, that's good, but that's happening on November the 14th. I don't particularly have the time, but I think that should the time should be up on the Ninyatashu, um Bookshop um, Facebook page. Okay, and then the next kind of event to note is on Saturday, November the 20th, there's going to be a counter-protest um, opposed the anti-vax um, far right, and that's going to be happening at 12 noon at the State Library. And so, yeah, essentially um, November 20 is has been called as a National Day of Action by the anti-vax um, kind of right, and, yeah, it's basically going to be... Um, it's basically... Um, basically, a counter-protest has been called by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, essentially rejecting their anti-public health kind of message, anti-kind-of-vax sort of messaging. And, yeah, I think that it will be a good sort of, um, given that, you know, when the whole kind of CFMU kind of situation was kind of unfolding earlier that we spoke about on our program, um, yeah, given that um, that context, it'll be, it's great that we're probably going to be able to uh, counter-protest them this time. All right, well, that's it for the Green Left Actors calendar. And just probably in the meantime, I'll go play a quick song, um, Breathe In by Breathe Out by Filmers um, Plum, and then we'll move on to um, our special Disarmament Week programming. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio and you're just listening to Breathe In and Breathe Out by Thelma Plum. Now, for the rest of the program, um, in marking Disarmament Week, which all the different breakfast programs have had, all um, have had special guests um, discussing issues such as demilitarisation, disarmament, um, we- um, the role of mep- weapons manufacturer um, within kind of global global capitalism, and so on. Um, there have been numerous kind of breakfast programs that have had special kind of guests throughout their kind of program in, in, in marking disarmament week for Free CR Community Radio. And at Green Left Radio, we have our own kind of special guest and we're very welcome to welcome Dimity Hawkins, who is part of the internet ICANN, which is the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So good morning, Dimity. Good morning, Jacob. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so maybe possibly to kind of start, I guess, off the kind of discussion is, I mean, given that you are part of um, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, I guess I kind of want to hear some of your kind of general kind of comments on, you know, the general kind of situation on this whole issue of disarmament and, you know, the campaigning around um, for peace in this current um, um, time period. Well, it's certainly a challenging time um, on disarmament, as as uh, many of your listeners will know. Um, I mean, really, when hasn't been a challenging time on disarmament? It is a constant battle to uh, try and get disarmament, um, you know, obligations seen to and so forth. And that's why this Disarmament Week that the United Nations holds every year at this time is really important because it actually is a commitment to bring civil society voices like ours and governments together to show a commitment to um, those treaties and those agreements and those um, peace and um, trust and, um, you know, sustainable, sustainable development and protection of civilians, all of those kinds of things. Um, are sort of highlighted in this week at the United Nations and they sort of turn our minds to the importance of work for peace. Um, So, yes, at the moment it is a really difficult time. Um, So many of, in terms of nuclear weapons in particular, every single one of the nine nuclear weapon states are renewing or modernising their nuclear weapons arsenals. Um, We are seeing them turn away from commitments that they've made through certain treaties at the United Nations to disarmament, such as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Agreement, which has in Article 6 an agreement that those states will walk away from their their nuclear weapons. Um, They are all blockading against us uh, with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons um, and trying to be as obstructive as possible on that. And so, you know, it's it's a pretty dismal kind of outlook in some senses. What the good news is, is that there is actually so much global activity happening around disarmament. And this is across the board, whether it's small arms, nuclear weapons, chemical, biological weapons, um, you know, cluster munitions or so forth. There's just been such an incredible international effort around disarmament and around um, building peace across you know, across the globe, um, despite, you know, the, the, the push of nuclear um, companies. It's, it's big business, right? It's capitalism and it's extreme. 
And so despite the, you know, the, the best efforts of um, those nuclear weapon states, for example, um, despite the best efforts of the arms companies, we're seeing a real renewal of um, global activity and activism around disarmament across the board. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a kind of good kind of summary, I think, of the kind of situation that I mean that that this kind of discussion is kind of taking place. And I guess I mean I want to sort of hear one of the kind of interesting things. And I guess this has been kind of a feature for a lot of the um, a lot of our programs for Free CR, um, which is obviously given that we're talking to you in um, Australia. Um, in, um, there's been a whole range of a kind of announcements that have happened in Australia relating relating to um, relating to this whole issue of a disarmament, which is mm-hmm. obviously we have the all the ACOS kind of announcements. We have all these announcements around um, the new the new nuclear submarine that Australia is going to be getting, and then of course we obviously have this whole you know this whole climate of this. And um, this war, war, rhetoric of war against China, and I guess I want to hear some some of your perspective on some of these kind of recent kind of developments and how they kind of you know what, why sort of activists should be continuing to persist to campaigning for disarmament and against war in these current circumstances. Oh yeah, well I mean for let's start with AUKUS. So the AUKUS agreement was announced. Um, pretty much out of the blue, it's got to be said, by um, for most people um, on the 16th of September here. We saw um, Joe Biden, um, Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison or that fella from down under, as Biden called him, because he forgot his name on the day. Um, and we saw them all get up and, and make this big announcement. Ta-da, we're going to have this AUKUS, the very first part of the first initiative under AUKUS, is that we're going to get Australia some nuclear-powered submarines. And so we've we've heard the fallout from the French, who are really annoyed because they've lost a $90 billion contract to supply us with conventionally-powered submarines. We've heard all sorts of, um, you know, rhetoric from China and from, um, you know, the United States and and from ScoMo himself, you know, about how this is going to be safe and how it's not going to destabilise and we're going to still be committed to all our obligations internationally for nuclear non-proliferation and all of those sorts of things. The reality is that AUKUS is much bigger than nuclear submarines, but let's start with the nuclear submarines. They are a dangerous shift in Australian militarism. They will will nuclearise our military they will nuclearize the way that we deal with um, our, our regional um, obligations for peace and security. Um, they, are, they are causing enormous um, tensions in our region, ASEAN states, the Pacific Island Forum states, um, etc., who are you know very marginalized in the mainstream media. They're not being talked about enough, but these, this is where we live. These are who our neighbours are. These are the people that we have regional agreements with around nuclear-free Pacific, around um, you know peace and and um, and community in the ASEAN region as well. So we are actually causing quite a lot of harm even before these submarines make an appearance, if they make an appearance. And this is the crucial thing. You say that the nuclear submarines we are going to get them. Well, no, we're not. We're not going to get them for a couple of reasons. One is that we can actually stop this. 
this is an open question at the moment. Sure, they are absolutely determined to see Australia get nuclear submarines, but it's an 18-month period of um, consultation and consideration and everything else. How many agreements have we seen Scott Morrison stand up and say are absolutely rock-solid and seen fall through? Plenty of them. And there's a lot of reasons why these ones will and can fall through. So we need people to be active. We need them to be curious. We need them to be engaged in this issue to stop them. But the other reason that they won't come through is because it's very unlikely to see Australia so reverse its opinion about having nuclear power, um, domestic uh, nuclear power facilities in this country. We can't afford to see that happen. If we see that happen for the nuclear submarines, we'll see a, a real creep into our civilian and our military of nuclear, nuclear weapons and so forth. So there's a bunch of reasons why it shouldn't happen and it can't happen. <clears throat> but... Of course, AUKUS is more than submarines. It's a whole lot of things. And we're seeing more and more of that sort of sneaking through now. We're seeing more and more evidence of the bigger agenda here as well. Yeah, and I think you've given kind of good summary. And I think the points you kind of make, I think, are important that we cannot allow this to kind of happen. I mean, I think the fact is, um, and also the fact is it's also not inevitable. Um, it actually is important to point out that, you know, all these kind of announcements about, um, you know, Australia, um um, bringing in a nuclear submarine into our shores, those things are not inevitable. In fact, you know, one of the funniest things is actually the timeline for when we get apparently get this nuclear submarine is actually years away. So in, in that sense, yeah. we actually have so much time as activists and in within civil society to fight back against this. Um, but I guess, I mean, you mentioned this, um, I guess, this whole kind of issue, I guess, of um, nuclear power. And I think that's actually an interesting point because I guess... Um, for some, probably for someone who has been involved in, um, in campaign against nuclear weapons and, um, and disarmament, probably one of the kind of central kind of issues that kind of painted, um, you know, anti-nuclear campaigning was against this kind of whole, um, was against within, almost within the context, I guess, of the Cold War. There was obviously this fear that we could kind of doom ourselves to extinction through nuclear kind of warfare. Now, of course, that threat still exists, but now, um, we're now in a new kind of situation, I think, which is the issue, I guess, of the climate crisis. And in fact, part of our program early on is we were talking quite a lot about kind of climate change. And I guess I want to hear your comments on, you know, how about, you know, the current context of disarmament in this sort of situation of climate capacity, especially since we obviously know that, you know, climate change is um, get a disproportionately impact on, you know, Pacific, the Pacific Islands and the um, countries yeah. within the global south. And, you know, of course, at the same time, this climate crisis happening, we're obviously seeing this push of militarism um, of war against China. And, of course, we know that, you know, the use of military equipment actually contributes significantly to carbon emissions. So I kind of want to hear some of your comments on um, the point sort of I raised kind of there in that question. Oh, look, all of that, all of that and more, Jacob. I mean, um, this is one of the points that has been consistently made. The day that they, the day before or maybe two days before they made the AUKUS announcement, there was a massive um, new report, new, I say new because there's been so many of these reports from so many authorities' um, places that climate is our greatest security threat in our region. 
So the Climate Council here in Australia put out a report literally the day before, so saying that climate change increases the risk of conflict and Australia will not find lasting national security without addressing it, right? And that Australia must act rapidly and decisively on climate change in order to maintain collective security of our region. It is the burning security issue in every way. Climate change, with climate change, we'll, we will see increases in um, insecurity. We will see increases in conflict. We'll see many more tensions regionally and around the world. I mean, this morning there was massive storms. I don't know how things are around Melbourne with you all and your listeners, but um, you know, there were massive storms here this morning. I felt like it was a bit of a message to ScoMo on his way over to Glasgow. Hey, you know, recognise that there's a huge climate issue going on here. But, you know, even um, in our region, you know, Fiji, for example, made a state, stood up in the United Nations recently, made a statement saying if we can spend trillions on missiles, drones and submarines, we can fund climate action. You know, um, it, it's it's just like you, just hearing this over and over again. You know, in the Marshall Islands, they say, um, you know, the, the islands there faces an emerging security threat in the form of geopolitical competition by the world's um, largest powers. And again, we're going to be caught in the middle of a tug of war. Meanwhile, climate change is threatening the very islands on which they stand. It's just it's just constantly being um, connected the issues of climate and so forth. ICANN Australia has actually a really great uh, two-pager um, sort of talking about the links between climate and um, and nuclear weapons, which you can find on our website in the resources there. Um, and I really recommend people look at it because there's a whole bunch of ways that climate and nuclear weapons cross over one another. And when you said earlier, look, you know, this used to be our great fear that we would all, you know, die in the blaze you know, um, on an afternoon with nuclear weapons, that still can happen. There are over 13,000 of these weapons, over 1,900 of them on a hair-trigger alert right now by the US, the Russians and the UK and France. They're all ready to go within minutes. So this very afternoon, we could see nuclear war. This is not some historical anomaly. This is today. This is still today. And in amongst this time where they're still spending trillions and trillions, as CG says, trillions of dollars on uh, nuclear weapons and not on solutions for climate, it is just insanity. It really is. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, Dimni. And I guess I'm um, getting to probably to the end, I guess, of our interview. And I guess I want to sort of hear if you had any kind of like final comments to kind of make. And, you know, you can actually even repeat some of the things you've kind of said about um, the importance around demilitarisation um, week, especially in the context of everything you've kind of said before, but also um, maybe for our listeners, you know, how people can also support um, the ongoing work that international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is doing. So, yeah, feel free to um, comment all on that. Well, thank you. Um, look, I mean, I, I guess, you know, for, for 3CR listeners, you know, you're all... You're all there, you're all switched on, you're all doing so much in the world. Um, and I, I really recognise that. This is a, this is a listenership that, that is, is really um, already focused on so many different issues. What I would say is that disarmament is one of those issues that crosses over so many others. It crosses over issues of Indigenous rights. It crosses over issues of climate, 
obviously. It crosses over all sorts of human rights um, issues as well. Um, it takes every, every missile that is made, every missile that is tested, every bomb that is made or maintained creates nuclear waste. It also takes money out of your pockets for all the things that we could be doing in the world. You know, so it steals, this, this militarism steals from us the real human security needs, not just climate, but food security, making sure that, you know, everyone has, has access to health care and all of those sorts of things as well. In the middle of a global pandemic, we really understand what it means to see the inequities in our societies across the globe, where some people are, are dying in droves because of lack of access to adequate health care and lack of access to vaccines. Meanwhile, they're making bombs. What the hell? So, you know, just remember the ways in which the militarism that we're seeing so rife and that we're seeing really touted at the moment by the Australian government is literally stealing from all of you. So find ways to sort of embed that within the work that you're doing already, which is no doubt fantastic. All these people doing great work around the country. But find ways to bring that militarism critique into that work as well. Um, and, um, you know, check out the resources we've got with ICANN Australia. But there's so many peace groups around the country who are actively engaged on AUKUS at the moment. So, you know, get involved. Webinars are on. Um, there's a raucous anti-AUKUS caucus next week uh, through the Renegade Activists. There's a big meeting, a national meeting with through the IPAN, the uh, independent and Peaceful Australian Network, where they're going to talk about setting up an, an, a nationwide network of people working against AUKUS. There's all sorts of things that are happening and all sorts of ways that you can get involved. So um, reach out, find ways to do that. Right. Well, thank you very much. I think this has been a very informative interview, Dimity, and I think it's also been a very useful kind of discussion, especially in terms of um, this program and also FreeCR marking Disarmament Week. And yes, um, just for listeners' information, there will be um, we'll be having enough more discussions like this um, tomorrow on um, the sa- on the Saturday on the Saturday Breakfast um, um, Solidarity Breakfast program. I think which I think is from seven to eight thirty a.m. Or, but I think the pro- the actual disarmament part of the program will be from. 8.05 a.m., just like it was um, um, today. So, yeah, thank you very much again, um, Dimity, and, yeah, all Thanks the best so with much. your campaigning. Thanks so much, Jacob. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah. All right, bye. All right, um, so you're just listening to Dimity Hawkins, and who is part of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and we we're just having a discussion with her about all things related to demilitarisation and disarmament, especially in respect to um, the UN Week of Disarmament that um, FreeCR is attempting to um, mark with um, special kind of programs um, on our breakfast programs related to disarmament. So yeah, I'd like to thank all. I hope our listeners enjoyed. Now, I'll just quickly um, make a bit of a note um, just on some um, some kind of news stories. Actually, probably want, I probably should kind of note um, that this has been a bit of a... It was a bit of an interesting kind of day today. I mean, um, Dimity just sort of mentioned um, the storms that um, have been kind of happening. And, in fact, I would um, say um, the storms this <laughs> this morning, the, the wind this morning was a bit terrifying, actually, and almost actually made me feel like I wasn't... I wouldn't be able to get to um, the FreeCR studio on time, especially since, um, for some... Um, because of this, I think the trains got completely delayed um, getting into the city uh, as a result. So, yeah, hope... Um, um, th- 
we're, we're not, I'm not completely sure what the news is on the extent of the damage, but I think, you know, as Dimitri said, I think, you know, in the context of this whole discussion on climate change, you know, these kind of extreme weather events are actually, in fact, just going to be more and more common. And we can't forget, you know, um, back in 2020, we had the whole, um, at this, around 2020, um, we had the whole issue of the bushfires. And, you know, there's a potential possibility that there will be even worse, um, there could be massive bushfires, um, in the Australian context as we're coming into bushfire season. And, um, I guess the, the other sort of news, um, I think the last kind of news story to just note is just make a bit of a note that, um, um, in Melbourne, um, in Victoria, just to make a bit of a COVID-19 sort of announcement, um, we are scheduled to reach um, 80% um, double dose rate by by today, I think. And so from 6pm, um, all non, um, non-essential retail is going to be open. Um, there will now be an increased capacity for venues, etc. Um, people will be able to gather... Um, will be able to gather in groups of 30 um, outside, presuming you are fully vaxxed. And then I think, you know, this um, this whole, and then I think, and then I think it's also scheduled that more restrictions will be eased when uh, Victoria reaches its 90% double dose um, rax, um, um, vaccination, vaccination milestone, which was scheduled on November 24th. And I think at that point, all restrictions are going are to ease. So yeah, we're going to have to see, I guess, politically how this actually kind of plays out. I guess probably one of the kind of the obvious sort of situations that I think you have to tragically note, and I don't know what the current case numbers are, is that 25 people um, have died um, have died from COVID um, in Victoria um, uh, as of yesterday. Um, but I don't, and I think you know that is a tragedy, and the fact that you know the um, that people are still dying from COVID is is I think still. Um, d- demonstrates that the, we have not escaped um, the pandemic and there's going to still be a need um, for public health measures and for governments to be taking um, public health ser- um, uh, taking a public health kind of approach in terms of you know, expanding the, the public health system, ensuring protections of, of workers in the workplace like you know all those things are going to have to be still impaired and obviously in this context of this reopening we're still under some you know fairly um, that um, we are under, we are still under certain level restrictions. Given that you know we're essentially living in a sort of lockout of the unvaccinated, and only those who are fully vaccinated are able to access sort of any sort of real meaningful easing of restrictions. So, yeah. Anyway, I'll just um, end end the program on that. Um, like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, and stay tuned for next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.